theyeshiva.net. So today's class is dedicated in loving memory of our Avachasid Rabbi Yisuf Yitzchak Ben Elazar Kalman Tiffenbrun, in honor of his yard site Chav Beis Cheshvan, dedicated by his children, siblings, nieces, and nephews, the entire Tiffenbrun family. And thank you very, very much. It should be an eternal source of light and inspiration. I also want to dedicate today's class in the loving memory of Miriam Sussman, whose funeral was yesterday. <laughs> was tragically killed in an accident on Sunday. So we dedicate today's class in her loving memory and in tribute to her entire grieving family, including our secretary here, her daughter, Mrs. Einhorn, and the entire mishpacha. <coughs> We're all very, very sorry, and amakim, yenachem eschem b'seich shara ve'litzim v'yerushalayim. Not many words. It's a time of grief, but we wanted to dedicate this class to her light and her love and her eternal inspiration. Okay, so, We'll use the Chumash today, and I want to begin, if you could take the blue Chumashim, there's more in the back if you need. If you could turn to Parshas Vayetze, page, uh, page 83. Page 83, Parshas Vayetze. This is Bereshis Perik Chavtes, Pasekir of Genesis chapter 29, verse 11. Vayishak Yaakov. Let's remember the context. So, Yaakov Avinu took Esau's blessings, and Parshas told us he identifies himself as his brother. His father Yitzchak gives him the blessings, even though they were reserved for Esau, thinking that he's Esau. And when Esau finds out, he's extremely, extremely upset. Rivka tells Yaakov that your brother wants to kill you, you should run away. And Yaakov leaves Be'er Shava, where his parents lived, and he travels to a place called Haran. It's actually today you have a city called Haran, H-A-R-A-N, which is in southern Turkey. And that's associated with the ancient Haran, the biblical Haran, where Yaakov Avinu went in order to marry, to find, to run away from Esav and where he would build his family with Leah and Rachel. So what happens is Yaakov as we know, arrives to Charon, and he stays, he lodges, he stays at the well outside of the city. And that's where, for the first time in his life, he meets his first cousin, who would later become his wife, Rachel. Yaakov's mother, Rivka, was a sister of Lovan. Lovan had two daughters, Leah and Rachel. And Rachel was then shepherding the flock of her father. She was the shepherd. And she approaches the well, like all the shepherds who bring their flock, their sheep or their goats or their other animals to be irrigated, to quench their thirst from the well, which was covered by a big rock. So the Torah says, Parshas Vayetze Perik Chavtes Pasuk Yud An Yid Aleph. If you could put your cell phones on vibrate, please. Yaakov sees Rachel, he sees the flock, he goes over, he removes the stone covering the, sp- covering the well. He irrigates the flock of Lavan, the brother of his mother, being shepherded by Rachel. And then Pasuk Yid Aleph, 
Vayishak Yaakov l'Rachel, Yaakov kisses Rachel, Vayisa eskoiloi vayefk. He raises his voice and he weeps, he cries. And then he tells her who he is, he's her first cousin, he's a relative of her father, he's her father's nephew, of course, he's the son of Rivka, who is her aunt. She runs home, she tells her father, Lavan comes to greet him, he embraces him, he kisses him, and he brings him to his house. When Yaakov meets Rachel, obviously there was something very emotional about it. He starts crying. But the Torah doesn't say, why does he start crying? Why is he sobbing? So, if I would just read the Pasuk without any commentary and any context, I would say it was very emotional for him. Here he was a fugitive. He missed his mother. Rivka was so close to Yaakov. She really invested her whole life in raising and nurturing Yaakov. And now he was gone. First time in his life he separated from his mother. He didn't know when he would see her again. He was a fugitive running away from his brother. And when his mother told him to go to Haran, and there he would settle, and Yitzchak, his father, said that he would marry one of the daughters of love and one of his cousins. And now when he meets Rachel, it's extremely emotional. It's almost like going back to a second home. The Mepharshim also say, and the Balaturim brings that Rivka told them that you're going to see that Rachel looked like Rivka. So when he saw Rachel, he saw almost like Rachel was Rivka's niece. He saw a resemblance of his mother. It brought him back home. It brought him back to family. It gave him a sense of belonging, of protection. It was a very emotional moment. So when he kisses Rachel, he cries. He cries from the emotion of the moment. Everything that he's been through probably has been pent up and it came bursting out. That would be a very normal reason why he cried. It was just an emotional moment. But Rashi, who always tries to give the simple interpretation of the Psukim, presents a whole deeper dimension to the story. And you wonder why. So if you take a look in Rashi, Vayefk, Yaakov wept. Why did he weep? Says Rashi, if he should suffer, Beruach HaKodesh, She'eina Nechneses Imoy Lekvura. With his Ruach HaKodesh, with his divine inspiration, he saw that he will not be buried with Rachel. One second. The Ramban says at this point Rachel was a little girl. Maybe she was six years old or seven years old. You see he had to wait seven years till he married her. He had to work seven years. Rachel wasn't an adult at the point. She was a girl. <coughs> Which is why the Ramban says Yaakov kissed her as her cousin. She was a little girl. And he's crying because one day he won't be buried with her. <laughs> Is that really relevant right now at the moment? But that's what Rashi says, that's why he cried. Then he says, Dover Acher. There's another reason. He came empty-handed. Omar, he said, When my father Yitzchak had to get married, my Zayda, Avram, sent Eliezer with bracelets, with delicacies, with nosebands, it says Avram sent Eliezer with ten camels and, and all good things, all types of goodies and jewelry. And I, I'm here to marry Rachel, and I'm broke, I don't have anything. Why not? Why didn't Yaakov have anything? Yitzchak was a wealthy man. He couldn't have given a couple, couldn't give, he could have not given Yaakov a couple of dollars. Yaakov 
Yaakov really did go with a lot. Yitzchak was a wealthy, affluent man, and he gave Yaakov a lot. You're going to build a house, you want to be able to bring in some money, you want to be able to start off, you want to be able to... Sometimes the family wants money. It's not only 2022 that people want money. Even that back then in Mesopotamia, especially Lavan, had a special affinity for money. So that's the way to go. Eliezer understood and Avram gave him all the money and that's what, it had a good impact, a positive impact. So Yitzchak certainly sent Yaakov with money too and jewelry. What happened was, Esav had a son, Eliphaz. And Esav sent his son and he dispatched him to go pursue Yaakov and kill him on the road. And Eliphaz did encounter Yaakov. But since Eliphaz grew up on the lap of Yitzchak, his grandfather, he couldn't kill Yaakov. But he told Yaakov, I don't know what to do. You know, in our family, Kibbut Av, respecting the Godfather is very important. Esav said, I got to kill you. So Yaakov gave him a whole shear. And Yaakov told his nephew that the Gemara says that a poor person is like a dead person. Take away my money, I'll be poor, I'll be like a dead man walking, so everybody will be happy. Your daddy will be happy because you killed me, so to speak. I'll be happy because I'm alive. <laughs> you did kibbudav, you killed me, you took my money, you didn't kill me because I'm still alive. And that's what Eliphaz did. Eliphaz took everything from Yaakov, but he wouldn't lay his finger on him because he grew up on the lap of Yitzchak. So when Yaakov comes to Haran, he's empty-handed, he doesn't have anything. And we see that this is not just a story that Rashi quotes from the Medrash, but it actually says in Chumash, because in Parshish Vayishlach, when Yaakov confronts Esav and he hears that Esav is coming with 400 men, what does Yaakov say? When I crossed the Jordan River, he was going from Beersheva, which is the south of Eretz Yisrael, you got to go up north, cross the Jordan River to go ultimately to the region of Turkey and Iraq, where Haran is, I went through the Jordan with my stick. A stick. Who goes only with a stick? All I had was a stick. So clearly Yaakov said he had nothing more than a hiking hiking staff, a hiking stick, <coughs> or a walking stick. That's it he had. So Rashi explains why. Because Eliphaz took everything away. So now he's crying. Why is he crying? Because he's here with Rachel. He knows Yitzchak told him at the end of Parshas told us that he doesn't want him to marry a woman from Canaan. Rather, he wants him to take one of the daughters of Lavan, which would be either Rachel or Leah. And at this point, it would be Rachel. So he's crying because he didn't bring anything to her. So Rashi finds two interpretations why Yaakov started to weep when he meets for the first time who would become his future bride, Rachel. Why? Number one, because he's thinking about the burial day. One day they won't be buried together. And another interpretation is because he's here and he has nothing to give. All he has is a stick. Rashi does not give us the more, we would think, more simple interpretation. He cried from emotion. Rashi says because either he was thinking about the burial, that's his first explanation. Other explanation is he's weeping, not because of any emotion, but because of the fact, not because of the meaning, but because of the fact that he doesn't have jewelry to give her, and that's why he starts crying. What is behind this? What moved Rashi to give us these two interpretations? And really, it's not Rashi. Rashi's quoting it from the Medrash, as it says at the end of Rashi. It comes from the Medrash, the Chazal, why did Chazal see in these tears a reference either to the future burial or to the fact that Yaakov was broke rather than just the encounter itself was so emotional? I once shared with you the fact that whenever you learn Medrash, people think that Medrash is just like you know interesting commentaries that are just adding to the story. 
But really the focus of Medrash, as somebody once said, it's like harmony to a song. You could sit down at the piano and go like, da 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 Anybody does that? Right? And you got it right. But then somebody else sits down at the piano and is, they fill in the harmony to the song. And the song has a different resonance. Teresh Abiksav is like the notes. And the Medrash is the harmony. It's not here to impose new interpretations that are not necessary to put into the text, but it rather tries to bring out the full resonance and impact and depth of the message. Here will be an example of that. In order to appreciate this, let's, for a moment, learn another medrash, which is not just equally strange, but far, far more strange. How does the story progress? Yaakov is invited to Lovin's home, Yaakov, it says, cherishes Rachel, he loves Rachel, Vayev, Yaakov is Rachel, and he tells Lavan, his future father-in-law, I'm going to work for you for seven years, and I want Rachel. I want Rachel as a wife. Lavan's response is a little enigmatic, as it usually is. He doesn't say, yes, sure, you're a great guy, right? I heard great stuff about you, I called you Rosh Hashiva. He says, Toiv titi oisalach mititi oisalish acher. Better to give her to you than to give her to somebody else. It's almost like, I'm not sure you're the right guy, but under the circumstances, you're on top of the list. Okay, fine. Yaakov serves for seven years. The Torah says they passed like a few days because of his profound affection towards Rachel. And when the seven years are up, he asks Lavan if he could marry Rachel. Now take a look in Pasuk Chav Beis, the next page. Again, if you have the Blue Hamashim, it's page 84. Parshas Vayetze, Perik Chav, Perik Chav Tes, Pasuk Chav Beis, Bereshis 29, verse 22. Lovin gathers all the people of the place and he makes a feast. It's a wedding, a chasana, you make a mishta. Vayiva Erev, it's nighttime. Vayikach esleya bitoi, vayove oisa elo, vayove elav. Lavan does the famous switch. He takes his older daughter, Leah. Of course, he has two daughters. One is older, one is younger. Leah is the older one. And he takes Leah and he brings Leah to Yaakov. He brings Leah to Yaakov's tent. And indeed, which means they consummate the marriage as a husband and wife. He also gives, he gives Leah a, a maidservant. Her name is Zilpah. So she would be able to be an assistant of Leah in the new house. This happened at night. It was dark. Yaakov didn't see who came into the tent. Morning arrives. And behold, she's Leah. Whoops. It's the wrong one. It's the wrong one. Vihine he Leah. What happened at this moment? He speaks to Lovin. Now, Lovin is not in the tent. <laughs> so he leaves the tent, obviously, and he goes to his father-in-law, and he says, What did you do to me? I worked seven years for Rachel. That was the condition. Why did you, Rimisani means, why did you deceive me? Why have you been so deceitful to me? What's Lovin's answer? 
It's morally inappropriate. In our region, in our zip code, it's unheard of that you allow the younger daughter to get married before the oldest daughter. You don't do that. In other words, I am sensitive to the moral constitution of our place, of our region. Leah is not married yet. I can't marry off Rachel before Leah. And of course, therefore I had to give you Leah. They say, you know, how do you know you're dealing with a crook? You come in to complain and then you go out feeling guilty. You know he's an authentic crook, right? Just a good litmus test. Okay. It's like me, me. I'm the tzaddik. You're the crazy one, right? You're the crazy one. You ever had anybody do that to you? Okay. Gaslighting, they call it today. Yeah, very good. And he continues. He says, there's no problem. You know, let's finish the Sheva Brachas. You'll marry Rachel too, and you'll work another seven years for me. Right? It's perfect. You got Leah for seven years. You got Rachel for another seven years. And then comes the surprise. Yaakov says, okay, I'm in. Vayas Yaakov Kane, he does that. They wait till the end of the seven days. From here we learn Sheva Brachas. He marries Rachel. And indeed, he stays another seven years to work for Rachel. And then he'll stay yet another six years. Ultimately, he'll remain in this home of Lavan for two decades, for 20 years. And then the Torah says in Pasuk Lamed, he also came to Rachel, meaning he consummated the marriage with Rachel. Now here is where the English translation will never capture the Hebrew. Because if you translate it literally, the sentence will come out very awkward. He loved also Rachel from Leah. Right? Doesn't work. In Hebrew, it's very subtle. Vayehav gamas Rachel. He also loved Rachel, which means he loved Leah, because you can't say you also loved somebody else if he didn't love the first one. But me Leah, but more than Leah. So he loved also Rachel, which, meaning he loved Leah, but he loved also Rachel, but Rachel more than Leah. And he works another seven years. Vayar Hashem kisnua Leah. Hashem sees that Leah is unloved. Vayiftach Esrachme opens her womb. Virachel Akara, Rachel is barren, Rachel is infertile. And Leah begins having her children. The first one is Reuven. The second one is Shimon, Levi, Yehuda. And the, the story progresses with the birth of the Shvatim, the children of Leah, and then ultimately children of Rachel later, and Bila and Zilpah, etc. What happened in that morning? Vayhiba Boiker. Vihinehi Leah. Behold, she's Leah. Did Yaakov and Leah have a conversation at that moment? It says he went to Lavan, but what did he tell Leah? Before he went to Lavan, did he just run out, run out of the house and go to Leah? The Pasuk doesn't say. As usual, the Torah is filled with gaps, especially when it comes to emotions. And it almost allows you to concoct in your imagination what might have happened at that moment. And part of the Medrash's role is that it fills these gaps. So if you look in Medrash Rabbah, we quoted before the Medrash about Yaakov crying when he met Rachel. What happened this morning? In the morning he sees she's Leah. Did he say anything to her? I would assume something happened. So the Medrash says, yeah, they had a conversation. What was the conversation? And this is quoted in a few of the Medrashim in Medrash Rabbah, in Medrash Tanchuma, in Medrash Lakachtoiv.
each one a little bit with a slightly different version, but the theme is identical. Yaakov turned to Leah, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm just giving the content, and Yaakov tells Leah, what we, like we would say in English, the apple did not fall far from the tree. You are a proud daughter of your tati. Your father is a crook. So are you. Why did you deceive me? Why did you come into the tent, portrayed, depicted, personified as Rachel when you're Leah? What did Leah say? So the Medrash says, Leah said these words to him. Every craftsman needs a teacher. Every craftsman, there's no trade that I can cultivate and excel in if I don't have somebody mentoring me. That's the fact. Whether it's athleticism or dancing or writing or communication or farming or goldsmith or blacksmith, whatever, any trade in the world, you need a teacher. She says, even a barber, <laughs> not even. Cutting here is an art, a sapper. And every barber has a rebbe. You have to have a rebbe, a teacher to teach you how to give a good haircut. Right? They say the difference between a good and bad haircut is a few weeks. But still, a person has to know what they're doing. Even to cut a piece of meat, you know, there's an art. I don't have to tell this. is Chashav Right? There's people who know how to cut and don't know how to cut. There's people who cut contrary to the structure of the meat. And there's those, there's a special word for it. You're an author. What's the name? With the grain, right? You're carving. You're carving. Michelangelo once said, they asked him how he did what he did. He was considered the greatest, one of the greatest sculpturer in history. And he said, I saw the angel trapped in the marble. And I carved and carved and I set the angel free. That's what a real educator is. That's what a teacher is. You don't create the angel. You see the angel right there, and you carve and carve, and you set the angel free. That's what, a, that's what a good teacher is. So Leah tells Yaakov, I want to tell you something. Crooks also have teachers. Ganovim also have teachers. Everybody has a Rebbe. <laughs> Everybody has somebody who's a role model, who inspires them. My father's a crook. I'm a crook. But we had a good teacher. And I'm going to tell you about this teacher. There was an old man who couldn't see. And he called in his oldest son. And he said, bring me food and I'm going to bless you. And there was a younger brother who went and camouflaged himself as the older brother and deceived his father and stole the blessings. This man was our teacher. He taught me and my father how to lie. That was her response. That's what the Medrash says. Huh? Deja vu all over again, right? Checkmate, right? You see where this relationship is going, don't you? Yeah, how'd you know the story? How'd you know the story? Was it newspapers? WhatsApp. How does anybody know any story? <laughs> Their version of WhatsApp. Now, the Medrash says this. It's so interesting. The Torah doesn't say this conversation. It's a gap. Something happened. And the Medrash says, and that's when their relationship became a difficult relationship. Kisnu Aleya. Not only Medrash Lekech says that actually Yaakov loved Leia. It says, of Yaakov Leia. After this conversation, it was extremely difficult. Now, 
It's a very powerful conversation. It's certainly sharp. It's certainly scathing, right? You don't start up with a Jewish wife. The question, though, is, but let's go a little deeper here. What is Leah really saying? Let's say she's 100% right that what Yaakov did was morally wrong. Let's say for a moment. Let's consider that for a moment. So therefore, I'm allowed to be deceptive? Yaakov asked her a good question. Why did you deceive me? So let's say I'm doing business with somebody. And I rob them blindly. And then they say, why would you rob me? I say, well, seven years ago, or actually 14 years ago, you know, you robbed your father. You robbed your brother-in-law. You sat in prison, whatever. Okay, let's say you're right. So because somebody else is a thief, I'm allowed to be a thief? What's Leah saying? It's certainly a very sharp remark. So you could say Leah is just saying, Yaakov, what comes around, goes around, what goes around, comes around. Every action generates a reaction. But this is a response to her actions. She's not giving an ideological lecture about Yaakov's behavior. She's talking about what she did. You had a good reason. Right, so is there a reason here? Or just, you deceived, I'm a deceptor. And then Yaakov runs to Lovon. And he says, Lovon, why'd you do it? And Lovon says, oh, we're right. We can't marry off Leah. We can't marry off Rachel before Leah. What is the Medrash teaching us here? I'm going to focus on one more thing. Most people wouldn't realize this, but in Torah, all these things make a difference. He. How do you spell he? Anybody knows how do you spell he? Very good. How is it spelled who? You know the difference, right? He means she. Who means he? Now, Leah was a woman. It's not a who Leah. So the truth is, when you read the Torah, this is what's called Kri and Ksiv. Sometimes, words are written one way, but they're pronounced differently. This is one of those examples. But if it's written differently, that means there's some significance here. It's not an error. So Vihine Hu Leah? I thought He Leah. Why is it written Hu and pronounced As He is always written. It's very, very difficult to understand this. Obviously, there's some hint here. What is it? Previous positive Vayavi love, Vayavi Elah. It's all Elah. It's her, not a love. Leah was a leha, not a love. A love is a man, a leha is a woman. Next one it says, It doesn't say, You're talking about a female. These are little things to which the Torah is expressing a very profound idea, intimating it, but you have to be able to pick up on it. There's something else that's very difficult and strange in the story. When the Torah introduces the two sisters... A few psukim earlier, take a look at Pasuk Tezayin, Perik of Tez Pasuk Tezayin, the bottom of 83. Lovin has two daughters. The older one is Leah, the younger one is Rachel. The eyes of Leah are Rakais. What does Rakais mean? Rakais usually is translated as soft, or sensitive, or weak. Rachel was a Yafas Toyer and Yafas Mara. Rashi explains what's the difference between Toyer and Mara. Yafas means beautiful. So Rashi says Toyer is the physique. And Mara is the radiance. So Yafas Toyer is the physical structure of a person's body. 
And Mara is the radiance, the light that comes off them. Rachel's beauty was in both. Ene Leia Rakais. What does it mean her eyes were weak, her eyes were soft? So here again you might say it's just a physical description of her eyes. But Rashi says, no, there's a whole other story here. What's the story? So Rashi says in Pasuk Yitzayin, she believed she's going to marry Esav, and she wept. Again, quoting a Medrash and a Gemara and Baba Basra, Kovchav Gimel, the world said as follows, Yaakov has two sons, Rivka has two sons, Lovan has two daughters, Rivka and Lovan are brothers, perfect Shidduch, the older for the older, the younger for the younger. So Esav will marry Leah, and Yaakov will marry Rachel. This is what they used to say. Because of this, Rachel was grieving, and she wept. Leah, sorry. And because Leah wept so much, it affected her eyes. So her eyes were affected by the quantities of tears, and the sobbing and the weeping, because of her pain and agony, that she might end up with Esau. In fact, one of the Midrashim even says that there was a letter exchange between Rivka and her brother Lavan from Eretz Yisrael to Mesopotamia. A letter exchange, right? You have two kindalach, I have two kindalach. Let's keep it in the family. Rashi doesn't say there was a letter but it says, Shahayu Oimrim, they used to say. But here's the question. We have a principle in Halacha, Ein Messiah Nesaisha Elamidaita. Marriage is always voluntary. You can't force a man or you can't force a woman into a marriage. You're not allowed to. Halachically, it's not considered a marriage. It's not a valid marriage if the groom or the bride don't fully consent to it. In fact, the source of it is Rivka herself. In Parshas Vayechayisara, Lovan and, uh, and Suel, they were hesitant about sending Rivka away to go marry Yitzchak. Right? Eliezer was pushing them to agree. And what happened? They said, let's ask her. Right? Let's call the Nara, Vinishallah Espia. And we're going to ask her. And they did. And Rivka said, Eilech, I'm going. And she went. And she became Yitzchak's wife. So from there we learn, Vinishallah Espia, you always have to ask her, is this what you want? So what's Leah worried about? If she doesn't want to marry Esau, she won't marry Esau. People are saying, that's their problem. So they're saying, if you don't want to marry Esau, why do you have to sit and cry and cry and cry about Esau? It's your choice. Nobody can force you to marry anybody. That's the big question here. And yet something bothered Leah very, very deeply. So the truth is that there is an underlying story here that needs to be explored and understood because Leah wasn't just crying because what they call in Yiddish mikvenayas. This was news spreading around. Leah is going to marry Esav. And some yentes or yachnes or lady gayers didn't have anything to do with making shaduchim for Leah. But rather Leah felt and understood that she may have been Esav's soulmate. It's not shahoyu oimrim in the street. Some people who were you know, posting whatever they wanted to post. But Leah felt there was something genuine here. And this, this perturbed her. The Medrash says, Vayar Hashem ki Leah. Hashem saw that Leah was hated. What does it mean, snua? 
So the Medrash says, The deeds of Esav were hated by her. That's why she cried so much. Which is very strange. It says Hashem saw that Leah was hated. Leah was hated. So the Medrash says, no, not Leah was hated. The actions of Esav were hated by Leah. How could you put that into the words? Kisnua Leah means Leah was unliked. She was loathed. She was disliked. And the matter says, no, it means that Esau was unliked by Leah. So why does it say Snua Leah? Again, very strange. It seems like you're imposing on words a meaning that's completely out of context of what the statement is saying. Hashem saw that Leah was unloved. And you're saying Hashem saw that Leah didn't like what Esau was doing. And therefore she didn't want to marry him. In order to appreciate all of this, you got to go back to the beginning. Esav and Yaakov are twins. Esav comes out first. Yaakov comes out second. When they took pictures of Yaakov coming out, besides writing how much he weighed, how much hair he had, who he looked like, the Shviga, the Shver, the Baba, the Zayda, the Elta Baba, the uncles, the aunts, they also noticed something else. His cute little hand were, was holding on to the heel of Esau, to the piata, to the, to the soul, to the, to the heel of Esau. Now, if you have to name your child, what type of name do you give your child? Right? So they decided that his name is going to be Yaakov. What does Yaakov mean? A heel. Not because he was holding on to his own heel. Melef, he was holding on to his own heel. It's so cute that a baby comes out that way. I don't know if it's cute or not. But uh, pens for whom? <laughs> pens for the one taking the picture or the one experiencing it. But uh, fine, he's holding on to his own heel, so it's like, okay, it's so cute. He wasn't holding on to his own. He was holding on to Esau's heel. So he's called Yaakov. His name is, when he asked, why do you call me Yaakov? Ah, for your brother's heel. That's interesting. So my identity is my brother's heel, Yaakov, and Yud, Yadoi, Yud is Yad, Yud, right? Yadoi, his Yud is holding on to the Akev, Yaakov. Esav was called Esav, Rashi says, why? Because he came out, he looked like a mature kid. He was growing with hair, he was a redhead, he full developed. So Esav's like, also, he's made, he's complete, like he's done. You know, you could send them off to graduate. Asui, he's complete, he's done, he's made, a made man. But Yaakov is holding on to Esav's heel. So Esav gets a name because of himself. And Yaakov gets a name which is connected to his brother, not even his brother's head, his brother's heel that he was holding on to. Now what happens afterwards? The children grow up. Esav is a skilled hunter. Yaakov is a ishtam. He's a sincere person sitting in the tents and learning. And then we have the story, Rivka loves Yaakov, Yitzchak loves Esav. Ultimately, Esav sells his birthright. Ultimately, Yaakov will take Esav's blessings. And the way we understand it is, and the way the story develops, especially when it comes to Rashi and the Midrashim and the Mepharshim is, Yaakov emerges as a righteous person. Esav is called Esav Harashi. He emerges as an immoral, wicked person. But there's something disturbing about the whole story. When Rivka was pregnant with her twins, the Torah says her pregnancy was tumultuous. To the point that she questioned her life. Why am I? 
It wasn't just a difficult pregnancy, it was a pregnancy that was so painful to the point that she asks, why am I? That's a deep question. Why am I? It really makes her question everything. And then she's told by Hashem through the prophet, you have two nations in your womb. From your womb, two nationalities, two cultures will emerge. There will be a struggle. Rashi says, what made her pregnancy so unique that Rivka doubted everything? So Rashi again quotes a medrash. Tayyar doesn't say it. Tayyar just says, it was a very tumultuous experience. So Rashi famously says, in the beginning of Taldos, that every time Rivka walked by Forshe and went by a base medrash, Yaakov got excited. He was enthusiastic. He started to kick. It was Lebedic. And every time she passed a pagan monastery or center of idolatry, suddenly Esau started to say Lechayim. And Esau got enthusiastic. And Esau became, uh, Esau was aroused. And Esau was Lebedic. Rivka is like, Oive, you know, what type of child do I have? You know, who is this kid? <laughs> right? This is this, <laughs> multiple personalities in one person. And the prophet says, it's two separate children. Two separate children in your womb. Twins ultimately are born, Yaakov and Esau. But there's a much more fundamental question. Let's think about this. I don't know if anybody here remembers what happened in the womb. But you certainly remember carrying your children in the womb. Now here's the question. Does a child, a fetus, have free choice in a womb? (laughs) Nobody chooses what to do in the womb of their mother. So our behaviors in the womb of our mother are what you would call today genetically predispositions. So who decided that Esav should gravitate to idolatry in the womb? Who decided that? Hashem, right? Hashem decided that. So why are you calling Esav a Russia? <laughs> I don't understand. In the womb, he's predisposed to it. Why are you blaming him? Imagine a child is dealing with something in the womb. And then you say, ah, you're a Russia. Really? Why? Because you, you gave me this genetic disposition. This is my chemistry. This is an addiction or a challenge I have from the womb. In other words, it's in my genes. Why are you blaming him? Call him a Russia? Yaakov is a tzaddik? Yaakov was born pure. And Yaakov, Esau was already born gravitating to idolatry. Nobody's going to go in to the jungle and say, the lioness is wicked. The antelope is a tzadikus. The tiger is a Russia marusha. The beer is a Russia marusha for eating salmon. The cheetah is a Russia marusha. The gazelle, the giraffe, the zebras, they're tzadikim. You really expect a lioness to wake up one morning and say, you know, I made a cheshman on nefesh last night and I went to therapy for many years and I'm having, a, I'm really pondering my future and my destiny. And I did 25 years of healing. And I decided that my aggressive nature is really inappropriate. And I decided that I want to become a new person or a new animal. And therefore, henceforth, I am a cute little puppy. Even though I look like a big lion or lioness, don't be afraid I'm a puppy. You can't expect lionesses to do that, tigers to do this, cheetahs to do this. They're genetic. They are genetically predisposed to all their behaviors. That's how it is. So what do you want from Esau? 
and yet we call Esav a Russia, simultaneously saying that already in the womb it was all there. So we don't realize the contradiction. But the moment you say it was already in the womb, you're basically saying it's not him, it's God. <laughs> or it's his mother, or it's his Zayda, or epigenetics. Epigenetics is basically the idea that we carry trauma in our genes. A professor from Mount Sinai a few years ago interviewed 40,000 children of Holocaust survivors, right? And discovered that trauma is not a story that you tell your children or they hear. It's something that goes into the genes, and therefore it's inherited genetically, and therefore you could be carrying in your genes something that happened to your father, mother, grandmother, grandfather, great-grandfather, great-grandmother a hundred years ago, or your child may be dealing with something in his or her genes that has nothing to do with their story. The last thing you want to do is blame the person. They're carrying somebody else's story. However you want to define the story of Esau, if you want to use scientific uh, language, biological language, the language of geneticists, the language of moralists, of spiritualists, but the bottom line is in the womb, I do not carve out my path. (laughs) It's even hard to carve out your path when you're 20 years old or 40 years old. Certainly in the womb, nobody has that consciousness. The answer to this question is extremely fundamental to Judaism. And the answer is articulated in one sentence. To struggle against evil does not make you evil. To struggle with evil simply puts you on a unique path and gives you a unique mission. It doesn't turn you into a bad person. One of the most tragic mistakes people make is they equate a struggle with negativity as negative. A struggle with toxicity as toxic. But that's not true. My struggles don't make me into a bad person. They just define where my arena of choice is. They define what my shlichus is, what my mission is. In fact, my struggles may be my most spiritual, my deepest spiritual gifts to turn me into the person I'm supposed to become. So in simple terms, it means as follows. Even if Esau would have emerged as the greatest tzaddik in the world, he would have never looked like Yaakov. Pira doesn't mean that Esau could be like Yaakov. Esau can't be like Yaakov. Just like I can't be like you, just like you can't be like your sister. Even though in school they said, why can't you be like your sister, you remember? Or as I once heard someone, when your father was in this yeshiva, why can't you be like your father or like your older brother even better? The answer is, because I'm not my brother. Because I'm not my... Esav could have become the greatest tzaddik in the world. He would have never looked like Yaakov. You know why? His magnetic field was different. His arena of choices was different. He was playing in a different arena. His struggles were different. His genes were different. His challenges were different. Esav's choices, whether he's going to be Esav, who Esav really could be, or not. But not to become like Yaakov. You never say, why can't you be like another person? Reb Zusha once said, I'm not afraid when I come to heaven, they're going to say, why weren't you like Moshe? I'm not Moshe. They might tell me, why weren't you Zusha? Why weren't you like Zusha? That's a different question. So if somebody is struggling with something, the worst thing I could, one of the worst things I could do to myself or to others is equate that struggle with evil. It's almost like if you were a good person, you wouldn't have this struggle. That's a terrible, terrible thing to say. It's so not true. Look at Esav. Esav didn't have a choice. 
His destiny was to struggle with Avodah Zarah. I may not understand this struggle. I have my struggles. This was not something that Esau chose because he was a bad boy. This is something that was given to Esau. Now, Esau had a choice. His choice was either his struggles become an invitation to weakness, despair, resignation, surrendering to my struggle and using it as an excuse to become a promiscuous person, or to see your struggles as an invitation to become the person you're capable of becoming by working through my struggles, subduing, processing, identifying, confronting, and ultimately sublimating and transforming. Depends where every person is in their field of work. That's my choice. But the struggles I have, even when those struggles are difficult, and sometimes struggles may be even very grotesque, and sometimes struggles may be very dark, and sometimes the struggles may completely demoralize a person from within, to the point that you wake up in the morning and you say, Lama ze to quote Rivka. Why am I? Not who am I? Who am I? Is a good question. It's a classic Jewish question. Who am I? Why am I is a much deeper question. It's much more existentially difficult. Existential angst. The response to that is not, oh, if you would be, if you would do tshuva, you wouldn't have this struggle. No, the response is, it's working through this particular challenge that is my mission. My soul came down to this world to work through this darkness, to transform it, to deal with it, because only through this will I become the human being I'm capable of becoming. This is the journey of my soul. These obstacles are not blocking my path. They are my path. It's a different perception. Ace of struggles were not obstructing his path to holiness. They were his path to holiness. And that's the truth about life. Everybody deals with things emotionally, physically, financially, psychologically, spiritually. Nature, nurture, genetic, what happens later in life. Things that were done willingly, unwillingly, inadvertently, at home, in school, in community, things I'm aware of consciously, and things I may be aware of, I may not be aware of consciously, and maybe one day I'll be aware of part of it consciously. The key is two things. Number one, don't equate your value based on how much struggle you have, as though the good people struggle less. I must be so horribly messed up and damaged. Look at me. No, it means you have a different shlichus, a different mission. And maybe, and perhaps, working through that will turn you into something that is a light that is so powerful and infinite that surpasses any other light in the world because you're taking that very weakness and that very trauma and that very adversity and transforming it into a vista to truth and enlightenment and divinity which is why Yitzchak loved Esau so much and wanted to bless him. Yitzchak wasn't naive. <laughs> you think every father knows who their son is. You think that Yitzchak, Esau just came into him and said, Tati, how do you give Meister from ketchup? 
Tati, how do you give Meister from snowballs? Tati, how do you give Meister from slush? Oh, wow, my son. What a tzaddik. And then he went to murder. Yitzchak knew everything about Esau. Yitzchak understood the soul of Esau. He understood the pristine beauty of Esau. He understood that Esau's trajectory was a very difficult one. You can't compare Esau to Yaakov. Esau felt so close with Yitzchak because he knew that his father, Papa, understands him. Papa gets him. It doesn't mean Yitzchak agreed with all of his choices, but it means that Yitzchak understood where the struggle began. Yitzchak didn't just look at Esau and say, you're just a rotten potato, a rotten tomato. Yitzchak saw the potential of Esau and always wanted to bring him back to that place even though it didn't work out. And the reason he wanted to bring him back to that place is because ultimately Yitzchak and Rivka were the mother and father of the Jewish people. And the Jewish people, like all people, would have all of this in their midst. We each have it in ourselves. You all have, we all have a Yaakov in us. We have an Esav in us. Some people have more of this, more of this, but usually we're a hybrid of both. There's Yaakov in me, there's Esav in me. There are those parts of you that are easier. There are those parts of you that are smoother. There's those parts of you where you cruise through life with relative serenity and tranquility. And then there are those individuals and those parts within of us that create turmoil. They create tension. It's anything but simple. I have to conquer. I have to overcome. I have to identify. And there could be a lot, a lot of pain associated with it. That's the ace of inside of me. The, huh? One moment. So when Yaakov is born, Yodo Yechezes Ba'kev Esav is a very profound idea. If my hand is holding on to somebody's heel, what it basically means is that person's heel is pulling me up. When you move up, I move up. Because if I'm holding on to your heel, right, and you're moving, you're growing, I get pulled up. This is a very profound, it says he called his name Yaakov. Who's he? Rashi says, when it comes to Esav, the Torah says, and every word is precise, it says, they called him Esav. Yaakov, he called him Yaakov. By Esav, everybody called him Esav. By Yaakov, there was one person who had to have the perception. By Yikra. The question is, was it Yitzchak? Was it Hashem? Because what Yaakov was learning at this moment is, spiritually speaking, the ace of inside of me is not here to destroy me. It's here to elevate me. If I could just hold on to the heel of Esau, even that which seems like the heel, the Medrash says that the heel is considered the malach hamavis in a person. Because the least circulation comes to the heel. That's why people who suffer from diabetes, right? <coughs> the feet are always the first victims because diabetes affects circulation. And circulation of the feet on a good day is poor because it's distance from the heart and the nature of its physical chemistry. Make molecular makeup. So therefore, it's called a malach hamavis, like the rough skin, the soul. The soul even the soul of Esau, the lowest part of Esau, it's really It's really there to raise you to heights that were unprecedented. Because in a person's life, if we think about it, there are those parts of me that I could look in the mirror and say, Geshmak, I'm a chaya. Beautiful. There's those parts of me that may torment me. They make life difficult. They make relationships difficult. Sometimes people have certain features, literally 
memories stuck in their body that make their relationships with themselves, with their loved ones, difficult. It sometimes takes them years to discover that the people around them are not at fault. But sometimes something inside of me is so wounded and so stuck, I may not even know about it, and it's paralyzing and literally freezing all my relationships. That discovery is a painful discovery. That discovery causes a lot of grief. You have to grieve. Because it's grieving for an innocence that has been taken away. It's grieving for a childhood that may have been taken away. But if I go even deeper, I will realize that it's this precise struggle. That if I don't run away from it, if I can look at it, if I can cry with it, if I can even cuddle it and thank it for trying to keep me alive, because it did. It kept me in survival mode, but it allowed me to survive. Sometimes shutting down is your only way of surviving. Thank it for keeping you alive. And now say, and now let's go much deeper and let's redefine this very experience as a springboard for extraordinary awareness and enlightenment. And whenever you take that energy and you transform it into a catalyst for growth, there is a growth that is unbelievably powerful because it has a nuclear energy because all the negativity is transformed. Like the darkness that is transformed into light creates a whole different level of light. When you look at people in their eyes, people who have been through real painful experience, but they turned it into sources of real vulnerability and honesty. There's nobody you can have a relationship with as deep as with such people because there's no ego. There's no vanity. There's no haughtiness. There's no cover-ups. Sometimes you meet a person and you can almost feel this halo of, of, of purity around them. And you know this person worked through a lot, a lot of stuff. There's like almost a, a, there's no superficiality. They can't afford to be superficial. The regular superficial conversations that mean nothing to nobody work for some people, but not for such people. They had to fight for their soul. They had to fight for everything they own. It's a different level. And then that cave Asaph proves to sublimate me. But sadly, Asaph, instead of becoming the hero of the struggle, the conqueror, Asaph saw his struggles as an invitation for weakness. Asaph most people didn't understand him, and the most tragic thing was he didn't understand himself. When you have so many difficulties going on within you, how do you understand yourself what they are? You need really a light, because very often my struggles are just an invitation for more depression, for more anger, for more resentment, for more freezing, for more paralysis, for more fight, flight, freeze, fawn, whatever my reactions are. To be able to look and see my struggles as an invitation for extraordinary intimacy and greatness is very, very profound. That's what Yitzchak was teaching Esau, trying to teach Esau. He wants to give him the blessings. Now Rivka loved Esau, loved Yaakov, but Rivka was also a Yiddish mama. And Papa, Tati's, sometimes are very idealistic. You know, your husband ever came home with a Gavaldika plan for the family, like, you know, a Chalamoya trip, you know, to the moon and back, and in the middle you go for slush and ice cream and pizza, right? And then Mama looks at it and says, okay, scratch this, scratch this, scratch this, scratch this, scratch this, scratch this, it's not happening. Rivka had her feet on the ground, let's put it that way. 
Rivka didn't challenge Yitzchak. She understood Yitzchak. She understood Esav. But Rivka understood, let's say somebody is chas v'shalom, a drug addict. And I give them money to go to rehab. At this moment, they're not going to use the money to go to rehab. So Rivka understood that the brachas have to go to Esav, but only through Yaakov. Yaakov is in a position where he can acquire these blessings and one day he'll be able to give them to Esav. Because right now, Esav, in potentiality, was a great soul. In many ways, it says in Svarim, his soul was higher than Yaakov's soul, which is why it was sent down to lower places. But at that moment, he has fallen too far from himself to be able to give him that level of energy, which would only be squandered and abused and exploited in negative ways, almost like giving that addict money to go to rehab. They're not capable at the moment. They're going to use the money for more drugs. You have to give the money to somebody else and say, hold it for them when they're ready, bring them into healing. And throughout history, the relationship of Yaakov and Esav is one, where Yaakov sublimates Esav until the ultimate tikkun, until the ultimate healing, until the ultimate correction. But the position of Yitzchak is recorded in the Torah so meticulously, because the perspective of Yitzchak is so critical to understand who Esav really is and who Esav becomes. There's always who Esav is and who Esav thinks he are. he is, and they're not the same. The Torah even keeps on depicting Esav from a very innocent perspective to the point that we once gave a share about this a few years ago. If you read through Parshas told us, your sympathies are drawn to Esav, not to Yaakov. There's a reason for it. The Torah wants you to understand the pristine purity of Esav. The Torah also doesn't want us to make the same mistake with our own children. Because one of the greatest mistakes in education is when somebody does not completely tune in to what the struggle, what struggle a child is experiencing. And as somebody once said, don't turn to the child or to the adult and say, what's wrong with you? Can you turn to them and hold their hand and ask, what happened to you? It's a very different question. What's wrong with you means, I'm assuming you're evil, you're a troublemaker, you're a bad kid. What happened to you? I want to understand what is your experiencing. What is going on? <laughs> My wife shared with me a story she read in a book, What Happened to You. Very, very powerful story. There was a boy, and he was uh, terribly abused by his father physically. And ultimately, child services took him away from the house, and they put him into a foster home. And he was doing very well. And then the foster home closed, so he had to go to another foster home. And he was also doing very well. He had good therapists, and he had a good, uh, I think, a very good mother. It was just, he got the support he needed under the circumstances. One day, when he moved, he had to change schools, and he went into a school, and he did very well for a year in the school. And then came a new year, and a new teacher. And the kids started to act out in class, but he was miserable. And he was screaming and rebelling, and complete, complete uh, loss of impulse control, and defiance disorder. So as usual, they diagnosed him with every mental illness in the world, ADD, ADHD, PDD, defiance disorder, depression, aggression, anything you want, right? Nothing was helping. Nothing was helping. And they went from one to another one. And they found a therapist, apparently a very smart, actually the doctor who wrote the book. They went to him. And uh, he had to figure this out. He had to figure this out. Look at how a person could be misunderstood, how a child could be misunderstood. 
this fellow went to visit the father in prison. And as a, a sensitive, acute person, he happened to smell the deodorant the father was using. And it was a very acute smell. He said something was almost a gift of God. He met with the teacher a few days later, and he asked the teacher, can I ask a personal question? What deodorant do you use? It turns out it was the same deodorant the father used. Now understand what was happening. This poor kid, I'm not going to tell you how he was abused by his father because it's not for a class between civil people. The man was a real murderer, is a real murderer. He's in prison. This child, when he came into the classroom, he smelled something. This wasn't a conscious choice. I'm going to make trouble. This was completely pre-verbal. It brought his body back to the being in close proximity to his father. And all the reactions that he had then, he had again. Because trauma is stuck in the body. The body keeps the score. This was completely unconscious. The kid completely went into survival mode, almost like, imagine, there's a kid in a classroom, imagine, there's a kid in a classroom, teacher's trying to give a lesson, and a lion, right now, imagine, okay, but if a lion comes into this room right now, what is everybody going to do? Run. Now what if Rabbi Jacobson says, come on women, let's meditate. I know you're anxious, I know you're anxious, but let's do a meditation. Close your eyes. Let's do some vooing. Let's get the vagus nerve. What is it called? Let it expand, right? Let's get into executive functioning, prefrontal lobe. Let's get out of survival brain, limbic brain. You're going to look at me and say, I'm out. Why? Isn't meditation? And the answer is, because there's a lion in the room, for heaven's sake. When there's a lion in the room, you don't meditate. You run. For that child, there was a lion in the classroom. So you tell him, but you have to behave. <laughs> the teacher is speaking. I'll give you a punishment. I'll give you a reward. I'll give you a hundred bottles of slush. Brilliant. People think education means being nice to children. Of course. It means understanding what people are experiencing. Emotional attunement. Emotional attunement takes a lot of inner work. If I'm triggered by this child, I can't be emotionally attuned because I'm not emotionally attuned to myself. So the Torah wants us to know, don't just dismiss Esau, the bad kid, in the womb he was struggling. Understand where Yitzchak is coming from. Yitzchak never stopped believing in this child. Even though the blessings went to Yaakov. But how can the blessings go to Yaakov if Esau is supposed to be the archetype of the struggler in the Jewish people, this is what happens. When Rivka tells Yaakov to get the blessings, she puts on the clothes of Esau on Yaakov. It's not just a deceptive mechanism, it's much deeper. She was telling Yaakov, Yankaleh, from today, you're going to have to fill two roles in the history of the Jewish people. You're going to have to find the Esau inside of you just as you're familiar with the Yaakov inside of you. Because you're going to be a father, not just to people who are cruisers, but also to people who are strugglers. You're going to be able to have to bless not just those who are goody-goodies, 
but also those and those parts of the goody-goodies that deal with torment. So Yaakov, you're going to have to learn. It says in Kabbalah, when she gave him the clothes of Esau, it was almost like giving him the neshama of Esau. It's like in Lahavdal in acting school, you know, you put on the uniform of the person you're trying to, to, uh, to emulate, and almost like, you know, you start thinking you're that person, right? If, if, you, if you dress, what do they say? If you dress the part long enough, it's not just, I'll dress in your uniform and lie to everybody. You know, a person, uh, Rabbi Yankel Galinsky was a big maggot in Bnei Brak. He was from Navardix. He was in Siberia for many years by the communists. So he once shared a story. He used to wake up at four in the morning to put on tefillin before they woke up because afterwards you could, you know, be sent to the, to the, to the, to the firing squad. So the first time, the moment he could put on tefillin, he would wake up. And one day he sees another fellow, an inmate, a Russian inmate, also get up at that time and put on a military uniform of a general's military uniform and stand for like a minute and then take it off and go back into bed. So he asked him, what are you doing? So he said, he was a general in the Tsar's army. And then the Bolsheviks came and destroyed everything. And of course he was sent to Siberia. He never wants to forget that he's a general. So every morning he puts it on, he looks at himself, he sees all of his decorations. I'm never going to let them make me forget that I'm a general. Why did I say this story? Oh, yeah. Rivka is telling him, you're going to have to learn about Esau's identity. And that moment, Yaakov now plays a dual role. In fact, he's going to have a name change. Yaakov and Yisrael. The word Yisrael means, Kisarisa. You have wrestled with God and with men, and you have prevailed. Vatucha. Yaakov will have two names. Yaakov now becomes the father, not just for the beautiful, pious soul, which is amazing, but also for the struggler. Now come with me on a journey from Israel to Turkey. Rivka had two sons. Lovan had two daughters. Leah and Rachel. Look at their names. What does Rachel mean? Rachel in Hebrew is a lamb, a ewe, E-W-E, a ewe, a sheep. A sheep is white, bright, very calm animal, very docile, very easy. People who have sensory integration, kids who have sensory integration issues, the easiest, I believe, is sheep. There's no resistance. You know, goats are, are stubborn and, and, and sly. You put a, a, a fence and the goats are on top of the fence. They go on cliffs, especially mountain goats. But kvasim, sheep, right? Even in Yiddish, they say ashefala. What's ashefala? It's easygoing. Soft, nice. That's Rachel. Rachel had that, that easygoing person, a calm person, a relaxed person. Even the gematria. Rachel is 238. It's the numerical value of two words, vayihi'er, and there was light. Why? When Rachel came into the room, you said, ah, she's the light of the party, the life of the party, the light of the party. She was er, she was light. Yefei tarev, yefei mara. It's not just beautiful physically. The beauty was a spiritual beauty that radiated through her soul and through her body and through her face. That's Rachel. Anybody knows what the word Leah means in Hebrew? (laughs) Yes, exhaustion. Who names their daughter exhaustion? What would your therapist say about that? 
Hi, my name is Leah. Wow. For all the Leahs who are here, welcome. <laughs> Back to Leah and all the other Leahs. Leah in Hebrew means leut. Leut is exhaustion. You have it in Parshish Vayera. Vinilu they, they were too tired to find the door. They were blind. In, in Shmois, Vinilu Mitzrayim Lishtasmayim in Ayur. The Egyptians were too tired to drink water. Everything was bloody. Niloi Nilesi. Leut, Leah means tired, exhaustion. That's what you name a baby. It's true when you have a baby, you're exhausted. It's true. For the next 95 years, you're going to be exhausted. First you have to raise her, then you have to worry about her, then it's her friends, then it's high school, then it's seminary, and then it's a shidduch, now you have to worry about her husband. And then you have to worry about her kids. Right? When do you go to sleep? You go to sleep. I got it. But do you have to really name the baby exhaustion? Is that the best thing to do? Of course, there's a profound depth there. And that is the Balatanya writes, Leah was exhausted from herself. Leah was a very deep soul. She was a very sensitive, they call, right? What do they say? HSPs, highly sensitive people, empaths. There are dandelions and orchids. Whatever description you want to give, Leah is Alma Discasia. Leah, it says, and Zoya was in touch with her subconscious. Whenever you're in touch with your subconscious, not just with your conscious, life is much, much more complex. When they said Leah is Ace of Shidduch, and Yaakov is Rachel Shidduch. This wasn't a few people who didn't have what to do on WhatsApp. So they started to spread news. There was a very profound messenger. Leah felt this from heaven. Leah felt that this is her soulmate. Because who can understand Esau? Leah. And who can understand Yaakov? Rachel. Rachel and Yaakov, what do they call it? Two, uh, two peas? What's it? Two peas in a pot? Rachel and Yaakov were very similar to each other spiritually. And Leah and Esau were similar to each other spiritually. Esau struggled from the womb. Leah, her name, means struggle. That was the close proximity of Leah to Esau. In fact, Leah can create a space for Esau. Because a relationship always comes first by understanding somebody by being an empathetic witness, by not imposing my view on who you're supposed to be, but actually tuning into who you are. It's the only way magic in a relationship can develop. If I cannot really create space for the other person in which you can be, without me right away saying, but, 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 leave the buts for now. We'll get to the but. At the moment... I really want to tune in. It's what what's real validation means. And if you'll try it, you'll see validation has a magical quality to it. People don't realize it because many of us grew up without it. But if you can really, really serve as an empathetic witness to somebody else's experience without judgment and without opinions, in many cases, they will find the solution for what they have to do. You don't have to give solutions. People have inside of them very, very deep divine mechanisms of healing. But the challenge is I usually right away feel like I have to delegitimize you in order to make you a mensch. I was sitting with a friend of mine the other day. We went to visit a patient, a cancer patient who's ill. My friend is a very worked out person, a really refined person. And the cancer patient tells my friend I was sitting on the side. And says, you know, I have nothing left in my life. 
My body is broken. I'm penniless. I'm in pain. I don't know my future. So my friend says, but you have beautiful children. You have amazing children. Later, we were talking about it afterwards, my friend tells me, you know, I made a mistake. I made a mistake. And I didn't understand, I said, why? I said, you said something so beautiful, the person does have beautiful children. My friend said, and it was very profound, he was talking about how difficult his pain is. I needed to sit with him for a few minutes in that space. Hold space for it. It's true, he has, you think he doesn't know he has beautiful children, you think he's not thankful for his beautiful children. Hold space for it. It gives a person not just dignity, it also actually helps them reach wherever they have to reach. But it's hard for people to understand this. Not because it's hard to understand, but because nobody did this for me. So <laughs> Most people didn't get this for themselves, so it's very hard to do it for somebody else. Right? Like a teacher once told me, I was talking to a teacher, but he said, you think somebody gave me empathy? I'm like, I got it. I'm not judging. <laughs> But that's what we have to learn. We have to learn that. Leah could be there for Esau. She could bring out Esau's beauty. But there was a big difference between Esau and Leah. Esau used his struggles as an invitation for weakness. Esau said, I'm struggling. I'm bad. Let me go down that path. Leah used her struggles as catalysts for incredible growth. Shame Hagdoila Leah. Leah was the great one. It says in Medrash, it's not just great that she was older. She had a godless, an unbelievable godless greatness. In fact, Kohuna comes from her, Leviah comes from her, Malchus comes from her. This was Leah. So Leah understood that she's ace of soulmate. She understood it. But Kisnua Leah. Leah was hated, says the Medrash. You know what it means, Leah was hated? It means that she didn't like Esau's actions. So why do you say she was hated? And the answer is because Leah and Esau, in many ways, mirror each other. In their souls, male and female, they have a very deep relationship. Esau understood that she's struggling with things inside of her life that can derail her, that she doesn't like. And yet instead of that, those parts that I don't like about myself, becoming a source of anxiety and self-hatred, what if they can become a source and an invitation to understand my shlichus in life? Where I can take that part that I'm almost asking myself to hate, because these are the no good parts, and instead of loathing them, and looking in the mirror and saying, why am I such a sick person? Why can't I be like my normal sister, who makes everything look so easy? Right? Or my neighbor who already finished preparing for Shabbos last Wednesday. For this Shabbos. Last Shabbos she finished two, two years ago. Right? Etc., etc. And I'm the only Meshuggah in town. I'm like the last Meshuggah in town. Can't get anything together. But what if Leah can hold space for that and not say what's wrong with me but what happened to me? And really be able to appreciate that that which she hates about Esau, which is herself, Kisnu Aleya, is an invitation to understand her unique mission of transformation and sublimation, it turned Leia into a giant of a spirit. 
Ah, so now come back to the story and you'll see, anybody knows where I'm going? So now Yaakov gets married. He wants to marry Rachel. <laughs> That's his shidduch, right? I love Rachel. I want to marry Rachel. But it ends up that he marries Leah. In the morning, Vayar Baboiker, Vihinehi Leah. So he goes to Lavan and he says to Lavan, Lomarimi Sonny, why did you deceive me? But the Medrash said, but what did he tell Leah? He told Leah first, why did you deceive me? You're a crook like your father. So Leah said, we have a mentor. You're our teacher. You taught us how to do these things. Says the Kajnitz HaMagid in Avodah Yisrael and the Svasemes, Leah was not tormenting Yaakov. Leah was not even cutting down Yaakov. Leah was not even telling him, don't start up with me, Yaakov. <laughs> I'm a sharp, smart woman. Leah was actually answering and explaining to Yaakov what happened. Leah says to Yaakov, you ask me why I married you. Rachel is supposed to marry you. I'll explain to you, Yaakov. Many years ago, your father wanted to bless Esau. Those blessings belonged to Esau. But Esau was not ready to receive them. So who took them? You went and you took them for Esau. In other words, a part of you assume now the role, the mission, the identity of Esau. That moment, that moment you redefined your soulmate. That moment you redefined your shidduch. That moment you recreated your destiny in marriage as well. I belong to Esau. You are a mentor in the sense what you, your action redefined how history is developing. The Yaakov in you is going to marry Rachel. The Esau in you, that's me. And the key is, you often can't marry Rachel in you until you don't marry Leah in you. You can't really make peace with Yaakov in you until you don't make peace in Esau with you. Because if my relationship with Rachel is to be real and authentic and deep, it has to work through everything. So I have to really learn about my own Leah, my own Esau, to be able to truly learn and discover my own Yaakov and my own Rachel. That's where the synthesis happens. So when Leah answers this, she's not tormenting Yaakov and saying like, <laughs> Leah is defining to Yaakov the essence of the relationship. And in fact, in fact, Yaakov throughout all this, a relationship with Leah really means learning a relationship with Esau. How do I know? Because 20 years later, Yaakov comes back to Esau. He thinks Esau is going to kill him. This time Esau kisses him. Something happened in between. Yaakov's relationship with Leah was worked out. So when it says, Vayar Baboiker Vihine, who? He, who, he, who, he, who. It's not a mistake. Vihine, who, Leah? The relationship of Esau was now taking on a different form. It's so true about life. Things we don't work through when we're young 
they keep on coming up again and again and again. And each time there's an opportunity to repair. It's hard because we want to go back to the old place and just, you know, break it again. But it's really who? Yaakov and Esav had terrible tension. Yaakov within himself needed to accept Esav. We once spoke about the fact that Rivka told Yaakov before he left, Esav is angry at you, but you're also angry at Esav. Atshuv af achicha mimchav, the previous year. Rabbi Yitzchak Varker says this. You're also angry with Esav. So when Yaakov sees Leah, vehinehu Leah, that's where the Medrash got this from. How did the Medrash know Leah said this? Vehinehu. Leah said, I'm supposed to marry Esav. When you said you're Esav, you weren't just lying to your father. You were cultivating that part. This is our relationship. But it's a different type of relationship. It's a relationship where you have to be able to confront every wound and every insecurity and every trauma and be able to use it as a catalyst for growth. And this is a big avoid because usually when I see those wounds, I want to run to China. I'm out of this relationship. There's a sefer called Mar Vishemesh. It's a Hasidic work. Reb Kleinim Halevi Epstein was a student of Reb Melech of Luzhensk. He says, Lama Rimi When Yaakov said to love and Lama Rimi Rimisani means two things. Why did you deceive me? Rimisani also comes from the word. What does Rimisani mean? Truma, uplift. Lama Rimisani, Favasas Tumir Why did you raise me so high? On one level, he was telling love and you deceived me. He was also telling Lavan, you raised me up so high. Oh, wow. It's not easy. When you're raised up so high, it's a different type of life. You know, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm dumb and blind and deaf and clueless, <laughs> you know, a bull in a china shop, it's not so hard to live like a bull in a china shop because you don't know that there's China. You just know that there's hay. Everything looks like hay. What do they say for somebody who's uh, who's a hammer? The whole world is a bunch of nails. Boom, 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 boom. Lamari misani. Leia was Alma de Skasia. Leia had an unbelievable depth that she had to work out. Leia is the model of the Balchuva. Rachel is the model of the Tzaddik. And they become the two archetypes of the Jewish people. Because each one has an incredible advantage. And ultimately, each one of us is a hybrid of both depending on who we are, when, we're, what aspect of life. And Lovin said, in our place, we can't give the younger before the older. On one level, he was stacking Yaakov. He was like, Pop! another dagger. Leia put in a dagger and Lovin twirled the dagger. You know the twirl, right? A2 Brute. Then Caesar falls. <laughs> like... Yaakov, in your place, you know, the older one is usurped by the younger one. In our place, we respect the elder. On one level, it's Alashtech. You took away your older brother's rights. We don't do that. Leah will not be usurped. But on a much deeper level, Lavan, which means whiteness, the color that ultimately absorbs and is connected to all the colors, says this switch that just happened to you is because you cannot get to the younger one before the older one. You cannot access Rachel 
if you bypass Leah. Sometimes we want to do what's called spiritual bypassing. You know what that is? I bypass. I'm never going to have a real relationship with Rachel if I can't have a real relationship with the Leah inside of me. It's the parts that exhaust me. It's the parts that I struggle with that really constitute some of my deepest callings, my deepest light, my deepest mission. When I can embrace it, appreciate it, and utilize it, then I can embrace my full light, my Rachel, in the most powerful way as well. So now it comes back full circle. And this is our last point. And here you'll see how everything fits in. Whenever the Torah uses the same words by two stories, it's basically copy-paste. It's called Gezer Shava. When Yaakov meets Rachel, it says, He lifted up his voice and he wept. You always have to ask yourself, was this expression used before? Was it used before? Very good. You don't have to look back. And told us, when Esau discovered that Yaakov took his blessings, he says, Father, you only have one bracha. Bless me too. Exactly the same words. Chazal knew this immediately. These tears are connected. Esau was crying because he felt something so deep was taken away from him. And he cries on two levels, consciously and subconsciously. Consciously, he hates Yaakov. Subconsciously, he yearns for Yaakov. He yearns for his soul. He's a son of Yitzchak. He's a son of Rivka. He doesn't come from bad stock. Even his conflicting genes were holy. Like I said before, conflicting genes just meant that his avodas Hashem runs through conflict. And I always tell my students, when the soldier came to Normandy, June 6, 1944, huh? I think, huh? Anybody learned American history here? Okay. Besiakov, girls, come on. June 6, 1944, Normandy, right? The casualties were tremendous, the explosion, the chaos, the blood. But a, a soldier who was hiding in a tre- one of the trenches didn't look at himself and say, I'm such a loser. I'm such a blemished, defected American. They sent me into this Gehenna to punish me. No soldier said that. The soldier said, I was sent to defeat Hitler. Of course there's casualties. Of course there's conflict. Because I'm fighting Nazi Germany. I was chosen. I wasn't punished. I was chosen. When I have conflict in my life, do I say, I was punished? Or do I say, I was sent. I was chosen. Esav's conflicting gene was a choice. He was chosen. That's what Leah understood. And Esav understood it subconsciously. So he wept and he said, Yitzchak, I want the bracha. I want the blessing. And Yitzchak says, one day you're going to get it, but through Yaakov. Yaakov will, Yaakov's responsibility is not just to heal Yaakov, it's to heal Esau. It's to sublimate the world. That's the ultimate tikkun and the synthesis of Yaakov and Esau. 
like we say in Shachris, before Yishtabach, Echad Echad, Yaakov and Esav. Esav is a redhead. They call them Edoim, Admaini. Only one more person is called Admaini in Tanakh. David HaMelech. And when Shaul saw he was a redhead, the, the Gemara says, the Medrash says, Shaul said, oh my God, here's another Esav. So the Tanakh continues, Yifei he has beautiful eyes, David HaMelech. They were both warriors. Zehoidig Midas Sanhedrin, Zehoidig Shalai Midas Sanhedrin. Esav was a wanton killer. David was a warrior as a servant, as a humble servant, according to Torah. But the energy, the, 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 the passion of David HaMelech was Esav's passion. And it says, Shaul HaMelech got scared. Ad, the only two people are called Admonis. You know, the passion, the... The, 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 the blood, the chios, the life. So Esau is crying subconsciously for those brachas. So now when Yaakov meets Rachel, it says the same thing, he was crying. So Chazal understood right away this is a continuum. So what do they say? They don't just say he was emotional. They say two things. He saw that he won't be buried with Rachel. Who is he going to be buried with? Leah. The second thing he saw is he came empty-handed. Why? Because Esau is trying to kill him. So he took away his money. So the crying of Yaakov is essentially the continuation of Esau's tears. The struggle is so real and we have not made peace with it. And that's why I'm hoping just to have Rachel, but it's not going to be so simple. He's going to be with Leah. Rachel is going to pass away early. Most of his life he's going to be He's going to be buried with Leah. And have more children with her. Most of Klal Yisrael will be built from Leah. Including Shevet Yehuda, Malchus. And yet, Rachel Mavakal Banao. Rachel is by base Lechem on the outskirts when the Jews left Yerushalayim and Tegolos. Until the promise that Rachel gets Veshavu Banim Ligvulam. Mini Koylech Mi Bechi. Stop crying. Again, stop crying. It's not just Rachel's tears as her own emotions as a mother. It's also the collective tears of the pain in the world. And the second interpretation is, Esau still wants to kill me for taking the blessings. Esau's struggles have taken him so down, so below, there's absolutely no understanding. Yaakov is now usurping Esau's blessing and Esau wants to kill him. Those are real tears. Real tears that are a continuation of Esau's tears. Because ultimately, ultimately, the Vayevk of Esau continues in the Vayevk of Yaakov. And the Vayevk of Yaakov when he meets Rachel is the fact that now begins a process of very deep healing and introspection. But at the end of this process, what we learn is that the two sisters spiritually merge into one. The two brothers spiritually merge into one. Because what we come to learn is that my goodness and my light and my challenges and my darkness are really all part of my holistic, intimate relationship with the infinite love and oneness of Hashem, which sees each struggle and each conflict as an opportunity to be able to ace of asui, to be able to do and complete your unique mission in this world. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. 
please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.